0: Well, it's nice to be back. Um, A couple quick things for those of you who have not been aware. I've been in the United States for the last month, and it was a great trip, a bit of a whirlwind trip, and uh, I had the opportunity to preach and teach, and uh, I won't bore you with all of the details, but it is good to be home and reunited with my family and with my church family. I want to publicly thank uh, Pastor Jared and also one of our elders, Judy Fua. Uh, Is Judy here today? Great job, Judy. I loved your sermon. And uh, uh, Jared's sermons were outstanding as well. In fact, I was very appreciative of Jared's last sermon last Sabbath uh, in which he detailed something that was frankly new for me, the unpacking of the significant parallels between the experience of David and Joseph. That was new to me. I loved that. And uh, I loved the way that Pastor Jared developed the... Uh, theoretical, what what might have been, what could have been if David uh, had resisted the temptation there. Uh, Hit the ground running. We had our Shoot the Pastor small group on Thursday night. I see several of you. Daryl, you were there. Great to see people here. I'm still alive, so that's a good sign. We'll resume that. And then last night was really special. Uh, Last night there was about 25 or 30 of us that went down to Cabarita with Rob and Beck, and they renewed their wedding vows on their fifth, uh, right around the fifth anniversary of their marriage, in the very place where they were both baptized uh, at Kaba, and in the very place where they were married. So that was very beautiful, and I was honored to be a part of that. So congratulations, Robin Beck. Uh, we're going to do a study this morning on Solomon, and I'm tempted to say it's going to be a short study, but if I say that, it will be long. So we're going to have a really long study this morning on Solomon, and we'll see how it goes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day today, beautiful day. Father, there's never been a day exactly like this one before, and you have seen fit in your goodness and your providence and your grace and in your wisdom to bring this day to us. Father, we want to lift to you our church. Adrian has already prayed and seen, has prayed with uh, Damien, but Father, we just lift our church to you, the needs here, physical, emotional, familial, spiritual, Uh, Father, we lift ourselves to you, and today we pray now that as we turn our attention to the text of Scripture, as we go back through time, as as we travel through time and and re-engage with these stories that in some ways are very ancient, but in others are decidedly modern. Father, the prayer of my heart today is that you will take this ancient story of an ancient man and that you will make it very modern in its application, very relevant Father, help the preacher to get out of the way. May I not make a beautifully relevant story irrelevant. And so show me how to do that. Bless us now. Give us your spirit. And we're just looking forward to what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen. All right, so let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. Jared has taken us through four sermons. Well, including Judy's sermon, we've had four sermons on the experience of David. That stands to reason, of course, because David, not only the second king of Israel, but but far and away the best-known king in Israel, Uh, he is one of what you might call the big three in the Old Testament, David and Abraham and Moses. And we come now to David's son, Solomon. And while the story of Solomon occupies considerably less real estate than the story of David, It is nevertheless a hugely instructional story for us, and over the course of the next five weeks, we will be finishing out the King's chapter of our study through the Old Testament. Then we're going to go on exile, literally, we're going to take a break on our personal exile, so we'll take a break away from the Ablazing Grace series until after the first of the year when we all return back, and then we'll resume from our exile with the chapter of exile. But today we're going to talk about Solomon, we pick it up in 1 Kings. Now, there are too many details here to go into an exhaustive treatment of the experience of Solomon, the story of Solomon, and the narrative of Solomon, but what I, what I do want to do is walk you through a single idea, a single idea, and I think in this single idea we can unpack the essence of the experience of Solomon and get to the heart of what's really going on in this uh, marvelous biblical story. And so today our sermon, let me turn this on, is titled Solomon and Shalem. Solomon and Shalem. And we'll talk about what that word means here in just a bit, Shalem. The rise of Solomon to the throne of Israel was not without events. Solomon is now the third King in Israel, beginning, of course, with Saul moving through to David. These are the only three kings that will be the kings over all of Israel. We're going to see next week that after the death of Solomon, Israel is divided. The kingdom is divided between the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. But here we find the third and final king that rules over all of Israel. And in many ways, the reign of Solomon was the reign of the greatest prosperity, certainly material prosperity and probably evangelistic prosperity in all of Israel. Things are settling in the time of Solomon to a degree. They're going to become rapidly unsettled following following Solomon's death. But in some ways, what's happening during the time of Solomon is probably what Moses and Joshua envisioned when they saw the children of Israel occupying the Canaan land, having rest from their enemies, having evangelistic opportunities, and material prosperity. That didn't happen really under the ministry and leadership of Saul. It happened only marginally under the leadership of David. And so in some ways, Solomon feels like we're settling into, certainly not God's original plan, because God's original plan was not for them to have a human king... But at least the best possible scenario with a human king, but as we've already mentioned here, uh, this is going to be very short-lived. The reign of Solomon is as long as the reign of his father David, 40 years. And after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is, is going to be in massive upheaval. We'll talk about that next week. When it comes time for Solomon to take the throne, his brother Adonijah tries to... Uh, he, he throws a little party, invites a bunch of people, and starts posturing as the king, pretending like he's the king, acting like he's the king. This is while David is still alive. David is very old, but he's still alive. And the word is sent back to David that Adonijah is throwing a party. He's got chariots going in front of him, and people are saying, long live King Adonijah, long live King Adonijah. Well, David had already been told by God that it would be the daughter of Bathsheba that would be the king, and David has relayed that to Bathsheba, and so Solomon has the expectation of being king, and so this potential coup against not only David, uh, but also Solomon is something that has to be met, and it's met in the opening chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, David then sneaks away, not sneaks away, but goes away with several of his advisors, and Solomon... Uh, is anointed as king. When word gets out that Solomon has been anointed as king and Adonijah finds out, all of those people that have been sitting at Adonijah's table who had been saying enthusiastically, Adonijah is the king. Long live the king. They flee in every direction because they know that they will be perceived as mutinous if, if they remain loyal to Adonijah. And so Adonijah is basically left alone. David dies in this general time. And after the death of uh, uh, after the death of David, Solomon actually slays Adonijah because Adonijah made a very uncouth request that he could have the young girl that had laid with David to try and warm him in his old age. And, and Solomon divined that this was an attempt to try and weasel his way or angle his way into leadership, perhaps even to retake the throne. And so... It's it's a bit of an unfortunate thing, we talked briefly about it this morning in Sabbath school class, that Solomon comes to power, but not without controversy and not without having to execute his own brother. When we come to chapter 3, and this is where we're going to begin in earnest, Solomon is keenly aware of the fact that the role of king, the job of king, the responsibilities of king are going to require something that will be supernatural. It's not going to be just might. It's not going to be just strength. He understands that the shoes that have been left vacant by his father David are huge and cannot easily be fulfilled. And so he begins to feel his inadequacy. He begins to feel a need for something supernatural. We pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh king of Egypt and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Verse 2. Meanwhile the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no because because there was no house built yet for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he also sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on an altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, ask, what shall I give you? This is the first of two such appearances in which God is going to appear, apparently, face to face with Solomon in, in some theophany, where he actually literally, in some significant way, appears to Solomon. And in this this first appearance, he says, hey, listen, ask for anything and I will grant it. It's a little bit like the genie, you know, I'll give you whatever you wish. And uh, Solomon, feeling his inadequacy, feeling his need, feeling the weight of the the giant responsibilities that were in front of him, he says, beginning in verse 6, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father because he walked before you in truth in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, for you have given him a son to sit on the throne, as it is at this day. The the humility is just oozing out of the passage here. Verse 7, Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. Now, we don't know exactly how old Solomon was at this point. He he certainly wasn't literally a child. He's speaking here metaphorically. Probably less than about 30 or 40 years old. He says, I am a a little child, in terms of his inexperience, not his chronological age. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or to be counted. Here it is, verse 9, the request. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge between to judge this great people of yours. Notice the humility. Not my people, not I'm the king, not I'm the son of David, your people. Verse 10, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked for life for yourself or for riches for yourself, you have not asked for the life of your enemies, but instead you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Verse 12, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be any after you. And also I have given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any one like you among the kings all of your days. And then he goes on to say, well, we'll just read it, verses 14 and 15, finishing out this section. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings, he offered peace offerings, and he made a feast for all of his servants. Now, if you're paying attention, you will have noticed that the word heart occurs in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 12, and the word heart is at the very center of what it is that Solomon asks for. When God says to him, ask for anything and I will grant it, He could have asked for the life of his enemies, he could have asked for an extension of his own life, he could have asked for material prosperity or military might, but instead he asks for an understanding heart and he says, God, you're really the king. These are your people and I feel incapable of and inadequate to be able to rule and to judge these people in the way that would bring best honor and glory to you. So please, what I really need, because I'm a little child, don't know how to go out or come in, I need an understanding heart and God says, yes! Because you asked for that, I will give you both what you asked for and what you did not ask for. Now notice here on the screen. What I want to try and pick out today, the single theme that we'll be driving at today, is that the key to unlocking the experience of Solomon is found in the word, what's the word up there? The word heart. The word heart. In fact, in 1 Kings, particularly in the narrative of Solomon, the word heart comes up again and again and again and again. And here's a remarkable little piece of biblical data the word heart occurs some 83 or 84 times in the book of Proverbs by far, written, of course, by Solomon, by far more than any other book of comparable size. In fact, the only book in the entire Bible that has the word heart in it more than the book of Proverbs is the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms, of course, is 150 chapters where the book of Proverbs is only 31. Ecclesiastes also contains the word heart like 35 times. So, so in and around the narrative of Solomon in 1 Kings, and in especially the writings of Solomon, this word heart, 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 heart comes up again and again and again. And what I want to show you is that the chronicler here, writing both in 1 Kings, also in 2 Chronicles, though we won't spend any time in 2 Chronicles today make a very specific, I believe, and and an intentional point, a literary point of drawing out the centrality of the idea of heart. And so what I want to do is start by just going through with you the narrative and keeping an eye especially to this notion of heart. After we've done this, we've raced through this first part, then we'll make 10 textual observations about the condition of Solomon's heart, and then we'll draw practical lessons for ourselves. Okay, first of all, we have David praying for Solomon in 1st Chronicles chapter 29 verses 18 and 19, and I've got that here on the screen. It says, "O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel our fathers." This is David praying. "Keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you." This is the prayer of David. Oh God, May Israel have a heart fixed on you. May this people have a heart fixed on you. And now he turns his prayer specifically to his own son. And give my son Solomon a loyal. And you notice there's a parenthetical word there that's italicized, and the word is shalem. Our sermon today is Solomon and shalem. This word is going to come up three times today, and it's going to come up in crucial junctures in the first king's narrative. Okay? So he says, give my son Solomon a shalem heart. We'll talk about what that word means and, and the, the particularities of that word and why it was the specific word that David uh, prayed, that he requested. Give my son Solomon a loyal shalem heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes, to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. David, of course, had wanted to build the temple, but God had said, you're a man of blood, you cannot build the temple, but your son will be allowed to build the temple. You can gather the resources, you can gather the materials, but your son will build the temple. And so David here is praying, God, give Israel a heart for you. Give this people a heart for you. And my son, the one who will be king, give him a shalem heart. Give him a loyal heart for you. So that's our first. Our second one here is that God promises to David a specific promise that becomes hugely important as we move down toward, uh, through all of the Old Testament, as we get to the New Testament, and that is that David will never lack someone from his genealogy to sit on the throne of Israel. This is 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4. It says, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their hearts, with all of their heart, God says to David, this is what will happen, with all of their soul, you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay? So as the chronicler, as the historian is introducing us to the end of David's ministry, the end of David's kingship, and the beginning and the launching of Solomon's kingship, already we have David praying, give my son a shalem heart. And here we have the promise where God says, if you, if your sons in particular, if they will be true to me and they will be true, keep in their heart with all of their heart and all of their soul, there will always be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. Okay? Now the third one here, when Solomon has the opportunity to pray, and we've just read this, he prays specifically for wisdom, but what he prays is for a wise and understanding heart. Oh Lord, give me a wise and understanding heart heart. And there again is the centrality of the word heart. God then grants Solomon's request, and let's take a look at that in chapter 4, verses 29 to the end of the chapter. So stay there. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. Heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman and Chalcol and Darda and the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, his songs were 1,005. He spoke about trees and the cedars of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs up out of the wall. He spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This is where we get the idea that Solomon was the wisest that ever lived. The only thing that rivaled the wisdom of Solomon was his foolishness. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. So what we're introduced to here is... Solomon's request for a wise and understanding heart and then God answers that prayer and the the historian says not only did he answer it but he answered it to such a degree to such an extent that the largeness of his heart was like the sand of the sea Okay. now we come to the next major event in Solomon's life which is the building and the dedication of the temple so join me in chapter 8 1 Kings chapter 8 and in 1 Kings chapter 8 we have one of the largest monologues in the entire Bible In fact, from verse 15 of 1 Kings 8 all the way to its conclusion in verse 61 is an uninterrupted monologue. It's an uninterrupted prayer, a dedicatory prayer in which the temple has been built. It was seven years assembling the temple. No cost has been spared. No expense has been spared. It is a marvelous, magnificent, ornate, opulent building And in a a marvelous ceremonial act, the Ark of the Covenant was brought to the temple that had been built by Solomon. And as it was brought in, the priests were ministering there. They were burning incense and they burned so much incense, the historian tells us, that the priests had to leave. There wasn't enough air to breathe. And so they were literally forced out by the size of the cloud of the incense that was burning in the temple. This is the dedication of a permanent temple up to this place, up to this point, For more than 400 years, the tabernacle of the Lord has been temporary. It's been largely mobile, moving from here to here to here. It was a tent that was built according to the pattern that God had given to Moses on the Sinai desert floor four centuries before. There's, there's something really exciting about this. Not only do they now have a permanent land, there's a permanency to their religion. They're no longer just a nomadic tribe wandering here and there like any of the tribes of Canaan or any of the tribes of Edom or Ammon. No, this is, there's a permanency here. Now they have a place. The, temp, the temple has been built... The, The the permanent temple has been built on the very place where centuries before God had said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And so so this is a grand celebration because there's a sense of national pride, there's a sense of, of spiritual pride, there's a sense of thankfulness to God. I mean, things are really starting to look up. And Solomon, under the impress of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit, prays one of the most profoundly beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. We will read just part of it. Picking it up in verse 14. Then the king turned around. I mean, 1 Kings 8:14. He blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. And with his hand he has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Watch Verse 17. Now it was in the heart of my father to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Verse 18, but the Lord said to my father, David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you will not build the temple, but your son who came from your body will build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. And he goes on, jump down to verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord In the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keeps your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. Jump down to verse 38. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then here in heaven, in your dwelling place, Solomon understood that the earthly temple was only a shadow or a picture, a pattern of what God had showed to Moses. The real tabernacle or temple was in heaven. He says, hey, when we pray here, you listen up there. Know, the rest of verse 39, For you alone know the hearts of all men. Verse 48 of the same chapter and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies to which you have led them away captive and they pray to they pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city which you have chosen the temple which you have built for your name then here in heaven there it is again your dwelling place etc etc when solomon brings this prayer to its grand and i think mildly ironic conclusion we'll see the irony as the message unfolds look at verse 61 God, Solomon now speaks to the children of Israel. He's just prayed this long prayer, the dedication, the grand ceremony that lasted eight days is coming to its climactic conclusion, and he says in verse 61, this is key, let your heart therefore be loyal, shalem, let your heart be shalem to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as it is at this day. Verse 62, then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Jump down to verse 66, on the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done to his servant David and for Israel, his people. As, As Solomon brings this grand monologue to a close, this encouraging, dedicatory Uh, a, a, a monologue of exhortation he says and be sure that you have a shalem heart have a loyal heart to god look at this building man he made a promise to david and now it's here in in brick and stone and mortar and gold and actual structure is here before us and there would have been great celebration it says there after eight days of celebrating everybody went back to their tent and they just couldn't stop smiling Man, they were thrilled God had done a marvelous thing. Solomon had, had not only uh, led out in the building of the temple, but everybody had pitched in, and it was just this feeling of, of national pride, spiritual pride, a sense of accomplishment. But there is an irony here. And the, ir- the irony is tucked away in the, in the final phrase the final line that the chronicler puts in the mouth of Solomon in that final dedicatory prayer, that dedicatory prayer, the final line of that dedicatory prayer, he says, be sure that you have a shalem heart. You be sure, you, you be sure that you have a shalem heart before the Lord. This then paves the way for the second appearance of God to Solomon, which we have here. Solomon grants wisdom, the dedication of the temple, and we've got it right here on the screen, I think. 1 Kings 8, 61, let your heart be therefore loyal, shalem, to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is at this day. Now here's the second appearance, and the timing of this appearance is very important. We'll pick this up in just a second, chapter 9, verse 1. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time. Okay, so the first time he appeared to him back at Gibeon and said, hey, listen, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom, I want an understanding heart. I'm a little child, I don't know how to go out, I don't know how to come in, I want an understanding heart. God said, absolutely. This is now years later, Solomon has just given this big, marvelous, dedicatory uh, uh, prayer uh, slash dedication that ends with his exhortation to the people of Israel to have a shalem heart and in this context, God appears. Verse 2, it says, and the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication. I heard that. I heard all of that, Solomon. And that you, have made, that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built. I have put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Verse 4. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked before me, in the integrity and, up, in a, in integrity and uprightness of heart to do according to all that I have commanded you and all of my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever and ever, as I promised David your father, saying, there will not fail to be a man on the throne of Israel. Fascinating. So, So God shows up and he's like, hey, listen, I heard all that stuff you said. All of that stuff where you were speaking and you were encouraging and you were exhorting and you had something to say to the people, I want to let you know. I heard every bit of that and I have a word for you. I will do everything that I've said I would do for David and for his descendants if you walk before me in the integrity of your heart. Okay? Let's continue on here. We've just read this text here. Now, 1 Kings 9, verses 4 and 5. The word integrity here is the Hebrew word tom. Tom. Okay? Now, the reason that this is important for us is that the word shalem... And the word tom are very similar in fact i've i've given you here the definitions of these two words and i want you to notice the huge similarity the word shalem means complete to be whole to be full to have integrity or it's it's often rendered perfect so so when solomon brought that dedicatory prayer to a close he said have a whole heart Have a complete heart. Have a shalem heart. Have a heart of integrity. Have a perfect heart. A heart in which there's no little piece missing, no sliver of inconsistency, no, no, a whole heart. And then God appears here, uses a very similar word in terms of meaning, but a different word, tom. And he says to Solomon, Solomon, I heard what you said. I heard what you said to the people. I heard that beautiful dedication. Now here's what I'm saying to you. If you walk before me with a tom heart, look at this word, complete, full, whole perfect, basically the same. The idea that when something is shalem or something is tom, they are complete within themselves. They're perfect. You can't add anything to it. There's no, there's no vacancy within it. It's whole, it's complete, it's integrate. Now let's continue. We're going to tease this out as we go. Okay, now watch what happens. Things get kind of interesting here because chapter 10, the next thing that the chronicler tells us is that the queen of Sheba shows up. Okay. This is chapter 10, and we're going to read beginning in verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels, and she bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. Now, watch this. This is key. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart, Now, so much is happening here. Let me just quickly remind us of what's happened. David prays and says, God, give your people a heart and give my son a heart. God then says to Solomon, Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, I want an understanding heart. Solomon then says to the people, make sure that you have a loyal heart. It's heart. And then God says to Solomon, I will put my heart in this place if the people will put their heart in this place. And then in the immediate context of this narrative, here comes the queen of Sheba traveling to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And when she gets there, she, the text says that she gave everything that was in her heart to Solomon. Now, what ends up happening is quite fascinating, and we're just going to jump down to verse 13 of the same chapter. What was the result? What was the end result of the Queen of Sheba opening her heart to Solomon? By the way, it's very likely, and most believe, that she opened more than her heart. Verse 13 Now, King, the, now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked beside what Solomon had given to her, according to the royal generosity, so she turned and went to her own country, and she, she and her servants. And there is uh, a, 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 I don't know, a legend is probably not the right word. There is uh, a belief, there are some that believe that uh, Solomon slept with Queen of Sheba, she became pregnant, and then she went down, she returned to her home country, and a, and a descendant of Solomon was born uh, in, in Africa. And this, this is a whole legend that sort of unfolds from that. But here's the point pagan princess shows up, opens her heart to Solomon, and as we're going to learn in the very next chapter, the chronicler wants to be clear, hey, this was not a one-off. This kind of thing where some woman, exotic woman, shows up with a lot of spices and gold and look in the part, and she comes with her retinue, uh, yeah, this, this, this happened a lot. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, so the queen of Sheba was not the only Many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you will not intermarry with them, nor nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Now, the whole narrative of Solomon hinges on what takes place in chapter 11. Okay and you watch how not how many not just how many times but watch the way in which the word heart is used by the historian verse 3 he had 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives, let's say that a second time, the historian says, turned his heart away after God's, watch this, and his heart was not Shalem. Fascinating. The first time we're introduced to Shalem in 1 Kings, we have Solomon saying to the people, hey, you be sure you are Shalem. You be sure that you are loyal. You be sure that you are perfect. You be sure that you are complete. You be sure. And God shows up and says, I agree with everything you said. I heard everything you said. In fact, Solomon, if you walk before me with a tom heart, a tom heart, a whole, complete, perfect, sincere heart, you will never lack a man and your, your father will never lack a man to sit on Israel. And then the queen of Sheba shows up. That's chapter 10, and the very next thing that the historian wants us to know is that Solomon's heart regularly went after women. Lots and lots and lots of exotic, beautiful, wealthy, well-heeled women. Lots of them to such a degree that the chronicler now says, by the way, his heart was turned away. His heart was turned away. His heart was turned away after his wives. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not fully follow the Lord as his father David did. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people. This is remarkable because we know Solomon largely for having built the temple of the Lord, but he also built other temples, places of worship. Certainly not on the same scale or the same grandeur that the temple to Yahweh was. But he has no problem building temples and shrines and buildings for his pagan princess wives. Verse 8, he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense to and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and because you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. That's what we're going to talk about next week, Jeroboam. Nevertheless, I will, do it. I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, whom I have chosen uh, for the sake of Jerusalem. Okay, so the queen of Sheba shows up. Now, this is so interesting. Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. Solomon's foreign women, and then God finally makes a promise to to Jeroboam. This is quite interesting. I'm just gonna throw this in very briefly. We'll talk about this next week. Stay in chapter 11 and jump down to verse 37. Hear the prophet Ahijah, speaks to Jeroboam, and he says an interesting thing. This is God speaking through the prophet Ahijah, and look at verse 37. It stands in perfect juxtaposition to Solomon's, the waywardness of Solomon's heart and to his disloyalty. Verse 37, God says through the prophet Ahijah, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you will be king over Israel. This is so interesting. The thing that God says to Jeroboam, the fourth king, he says, you will reign not only over Israel, you will reign over the desires of your heart. This was something that Solomon could not do. Now, let's let's go through our ten textual observations. Okay, here we are. We've done that. Here's our ten textual indicators. Okay. Here's my thesis. I'll give you my thesis, and then I'm going to try to support it textually. This won't take long. My thesis is that Solomon never had a Shalem heart. He never had a Shalem heart until much later in his life. I'm talking early on in his experience. He did not have a Shalem heart until perhaps, and and the chronicler gives no indication of this, we only surmise it from basically Ecclesiastes, um, that he eventually gets converted. Okay. Now come with me back to, stay in 1 Kings, come to chapter 3. Let me show you some interesting little textual indicators, little hints, little subtleties that you could easily race right by. You'd race right by them, you wouldn't even notice them. Okay? The first one's in chapter 3, verse 3. First Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Oh yeah, walking in the statutes of his father David. Except that, he's, that he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Except. What a fascinating juxtaposition. Oh, Solomon loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. He, he loved the Lord just like his father David. Except that he also sacrificed in the high places. I wonder if the same could be said about me. Oh, David Asherick loves the Lord. Oh, he travels all over. He preaches. Oh, yeah, he's written a book. He loves Jesus. He has family worship every day. He loves the Lord. Except... Number two, this is quite interesting. Go to chapter seven, 1 Kings chapter seven. Now, this is so subtle that it might not even be there, but it might be there. It just might be there. Chapter seven, verse one, look at the verse just before that, which is the last verse of chapter six. Last verse of chapter six says, and in the 11th year, in the month of bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its details, according to all of its plans. Now, watch this. So it was seven years in building the temple, verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. Interesting. Spends seven years building this marvelous tabernacle for the Lord, but spends 13 years building his own house. Why the detail? I believe the chronicler here is showing us that while Solomon did to some degree have a heart that was after God, he never had a heart that was fully God's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely spent seven years building the tabernacle of the Lord. And definitely prayed that beautiful dedicatory prayer. And definitely used all of the wise administration gifts that God had given to him to do something special. Yeah, yeah, he definitely did all that. Oh, yeah, but he also sacrificed in the high places. Oh, yeah, and he also spent 13 years on his own house. Now, the timing of the second appearance, we've already teased this out. Oh, no, excuse me. The, the, go to chapter 8, verse 61. We've already mentioned this the final thing that Solomon says there to the people is have a shalem heart, which leads us to number four. It's it's more than curious timing that right after Solomon has said to the people of Israel, make sure your heart is loyal, God shows up and says, absolutely. Make sure your heart is loyal. You be sure your heart is loyal. Because I heard that nice little sermon you preached because I was sitting in my temple in heaven. I heard that. It's like what the Lord says to me. Hey, David, I heard that sermon that you preached. I heard it. Did you hear it? That's basically what God said to Solomon. Hey, I heard that. Did you hear it? Number five. We've already mentioned that Sheba was given her heart's desire, right? Little indication. What does it mean that Solomon... What does it mean that she opened her heart to Solomon? What does it mean that Solomon gave her all of her desires? And what does it mean when that is followed by this? Now, this is just weird. Go to chapter 10. This is quite interesting. And and this may well have implications for the book of Revelation. I don't have time to tease this out, but I'll just mention a couple things. So let me read verse 13 again of chapter 10. Now, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she had asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now, this is so interesting. These books were not written without intentionality. They were not written without purpose. And the order and the narrative is fascinating. So, so he makes the dedication. God shows up and says, hey, I heard what you said, but make sure you hear what you said. Then the Queen of Sheba shows up. And then God says, uh, the, the chronicler says that God gave, uh, th- that Solomon gave everything that the Queen of Sheba wanted, all of her heart's desire. Now watch this. This is so interesting. Verse Verse 14. The very next thing the chronicler, says, the chronicler says is the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 666 talents of gold. Solomon's economy was built on getting a certain amount of currency. Gold, of course, was the currency of the day. A certain amount of currency annually. And the Chronicler just like, throws this little bit out there, just throws this little, drops this little bit of wisdom right in the middle of the story. Oh yeah, by the way, Solomon's monetary annual income was 666 shekels, or what does it say, uh, uh, talents of gold. Now, there are scholars that believe, and I'm open to it, that this is, by the way, the only other place in Scripture where 666 occurs. The only other place we have it is in Revelation chapter 13 where it says that Beware of the number of the beast. There's the two beasts there in Revelation 13. And it says the number of the beast is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Six, six. And here's the interesting thing about the number six. Man, of course, was created on the sixth day. This is why it's such a significant. This is why six is significant. Okay? Because man was made on the sixth day. And, and what 666 six, six appears to be saying is, hey, this is man. This is man. This is me. This is what this is like Nebuchadnezzar when he stepped out on the balcony there in Daniel chapter uh, 4 and 5. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? 666 six, six is about the sixth day. It's not about the seventh day. It's not about completion. It's not about looking to God. It's not, no, it's, it's about the sixth. And it's quite interesting here that Sol, Solomon's economy is built on man-made. That could very, well what's being, could very well be what's being said here. That there was something... Very human and very man-made and very built around the exaltation of man. Now, now let me show you. There's more than just the number. Watch what happens. Verse 15. Besides that from the traveling merchants and from the income of the traders and all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, he made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, watch this. The king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Well, first of all, why would you cover ivory? See, this is like, this is just absolutely purposeful, wanton, spending of resources. This is the kind of thing that people do today, you know, these young sheiks and others that get, you know, like a, they buy a car and then they have it like plated in gold. This is Solomon losing his mind. Builds this giant throne out of ivory and is like, it's not good enough. The tusks of elephants are not cover it in gold. Verse 19, the throne had six steps. Interesting. The top of the throne was around the back and there were armrests on either side of the seat Two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there on one side of the six steps. Nothing like, what does it say? Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. Look at this guy, man. He's drunk. He is absolutely drunk. He's drunk with resources. He's drunk on himself. He's drunk on his power. He has lost his mind. And then it goes on to tell us how awesome the stuff was that he drank out of. He, this guy drank out of gold. Did I mention that he sat on an ivory throne? Did I mention that his annual income was 666 talents of gold? The, all of this is saying man-made, 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 man-made. Okay. Number seven here, the repeated use of heart in 1 Kings chapter 11. The wives turned the heart away, turned the heart away, turned the heart away. And then verse four is the key. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart away after God's and that his heart was not shalem before the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Then there's this promise to Jeroboam that Jeroboam would be able to rule over his own heart's desire. And then our final text here, and then we close. Look at Asa's heart. This is so interesting. 1 Kings 15. Asa is a king that will come shortly hereafter. This is so interesting. It says of Asa's heart in verse 14. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 14. The high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was shalem to the Lord all of his days. Three times this word occurs, shalem. In this narrative, and this is when it occurs. Number one, when Solomon says, hey, make sure you have a shalem heart. Number two, when the chronicler says, Solomon did not have a shalem heart because his wives led him away. And then number three, when it says, oh, Asa, oh, Asa? He had a Shalem heart before the Lord. We don't know anything about the throne that Asa sat on. We don't know, we don't know what his income was. We'll talk about Asa a little bit later. So, beloved, here's the takeaway. The, the, the chronicler seems to be driving at a point, and I want to make the point here. The key to unlocking the experience of Solomon is found in the word heart. And here's my suggestion. The key to unlocking your own experience is found in the word heart. That's the point. Here's Solomon with all of his grandeur, with all of his pomp, with all of his material prosperity, with all of his wisdom. And at the end of the day, the thing is used to build up his own kingdom, his own harem, his own gold and and other royal accoutrements, right? All in the name of God. All in the name of the God of Israel. One of the words for shalem is the word peace. It's actually very similar to the word shalom, from which we get the word Jerusalem, shalem. What I've written here is that a divided heart can never be a peaceful heart. When you read the narrative of Solomon, you never get the sense that he's at peace. When we just had our Sabbath school uh, moments ago, Samuel said something interesting about Solomon. He said he must have been an eccentric. The feeling that I get when I read the narrative is that Solomon is somebody who is not at peace. He's not at peace with himself, and he's not at peace with God. He needs more women. He needs more gold. He needs a bigger temple. He needs more sacrifices. No, 500 sacrifices is enough. It's got to be 10,000. He's overcompensating. That's how we would say it. He's overcompensating. Beloved, I want to tell you, one of the best places to hide from God is in Religion. One of the best ways to hide the condition of your heart is to overcompensate in other areas and no one will ever suspect, right? Solomon was God's man. He was the very one who had built God's temple. He was the guy and yet at the end of the day, he didn't have a heart that was at peace with God. He didn't have a shalem heart. He was constantly compensating over, he could not reign in his heart or rather he would not reign in his heart And I suppose the lesson, the takeaway here for me, and the takeaway lesson for you, for all of us is, that if our heart is divided, it cannot be a shalem heart, it cannot be a peaceful heart. God either has, this is how I say this, if God doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have anything. If you're returning tithe, and God doesn't have your heart, your tithe is useless, it's not doing you any good. You might kid yourself that it's doing the church some good. But at the end of the day, God is, it doesn't, it doesn't need your money. Right? If you're having family worship, right? You're, do, you're family worship. But God doesn't have your heart, men, or your heart, ladies. Or if there's dramas in your marriage. Uh, here's the point. The takeaway point is, is just so easy, so simple. It barely, scarcely needs to be made. The chronicler makes it himself. You can give God everything. But if he doesn't have your heart, he has nothing. This is what God wants. What God wants from us is our heart. And I can't think of any better place than to end than on this profoundly challenging, beautiful, and encouraging statement from the pen of Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist church. She wrote in Christ Object Lessons, page 159, no outward observances can take the place of simple faith and an entire renunciation of self. That beautiful sermon that Solomon preached, God's like, I heard that sermon. Did you hear it? All of that money that Solomon earned and all of that wisdom that he had? I don't know what your religious temptations are. Maybe it's your cultural Adventism. Maybe it's your diet. Maybe it's the fact that you know the Bible or you've been teaching Sabbath school forever or blah, 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 blah. Whatever your particular thing is, not that there's anything wrong with these. Of course, there's nothing wrong with them. There's a lot right with them. But at the end of the day, if those are not the product of the outflow of a shalem heart, what are you doing, man? What what are you doing? God sees. God knows. The outward observances, no outward observances can take the place of simple faith, and entire renunciation of self. And then here's the key. But no man can empty himself of self. This is an impossibility. You can't. You can't empty yourself of self. Well, well what do we do then? We're, we're in a difficult, impossible situation. No, nope. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Can the church say amen? We, that's all we can do. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be something like this. This, is, this should be the language of our soul. Something like this. Lord, take my... Heart, because I cannot give it. It's your property. You keep it pure because I cannot keep it for you. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Beloved, that is my appeal to you today. Jesus is beautiful. He wants your heart. He deserves your heart. Can you say amen to that? But what he wants is your whole heart. And in the context of the narrative of Solomon, what he's after is your Shalem heart. You cannot give God your Shalem heart. You can't empty yourself of self, so what you have to do is say to God, God, in as it's possible for me to surrender my heart to you, I do. And in as much as it's not possible for me to surrender my heart to you, I consent for you to take what is your property. I consent for you to take what is your property. And then an amazing thing can start to happen. Your relationships can be changed. Your finances can be changed. This will be wild. Your church can be changed. Your family can be changed. Your workplace can be changed. Lots of amazing things can be changed. Beautiful things can be changed when God has the human heart, when God has the Shalem heart. And the warning of the story, the warning of the narrative of Solomon, is that you can go to the extremes in the external observations of religion and still be lost. You can go to marvelous, seemingly philanthropic extremes. You can preach great. you You can go all the way to the edges of religion and still be lost. We have to give our heart to God. It is His. It is His property. And when our heart is fully shalem, when it's fully God's heart through the work that Christ does in us, then and only then can God do the work in us and for us and through us that He longs to do. The work that God wants to do in this church, beloved, is a shalem work. It's not a surface work. It's not a perfunctory work. It's not a shallow work. The work that God wants to do in your family is not a surface work. It's not a shallow work. It's not a perfunctory work. It's a shalem work. Don't be satisfied with the wisdom of Solomon. Say, God, take my heart. It is yours. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is a privilege and an honor to call you Father. And Lord, when we think about the story of Solomon, we are reminded of a great many things, Father, not the least of which is that intelligence and understanding and wisdom is not enough. Riches are not enough. Industry is not enough. Administrative talents and gifts, not enough. A smooth tongue is not enough. Father, what you're asking for us What you're asking from us is that we just give you ourselves. We give you our hearts. And Father, we are in some significant degree incapable of doing that. Because of the inherent selfishness of the human heart, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Father, it doesn't want to yield. And so we ask you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And empower us to do for ourselves what we can do for ourselves. And Father, at the end of the day, we're looking to you. We're trusting in you. And we're looking in and trusting in and believing in Jesus. That he can do a work in us and for us and through us that we cannot do for ourselves. Father, I pray for the families in this church. I pray for the men and women in this church. I pray for the ministries in this church. I pray for the brand new members, for the visitors and the long-term members. Father, I pray. I pray for the preacher in this church, myself and Pastor Jared. That you will give us a Shalem heart. A heart that is wholly, fully, completely, and perfectly yours. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen.